Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today is Wednesday, February 15th, and I'm Colleen Cotter, Executive Director of the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. I'm glad to be here to moderate today's forum. It's part of the City Club series on criminal justice reform, which is produced in partnership with the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. In recent years here at the City Club, we've talked about a number of aspects of criminal justice reform, from bail disruption to the challenges faced by returning citizens to police reform and violence reduction. But we haven't spent a lot of time looking at victims of crime and their unique needs, nor have we examined how the idea of victimhood has been used to set priorities for law enforcement, priorities that sometimes are at odds with the best interests of our community. Today, we are going to do just that. We will talk about what it means to be a victim of crime, the relationship between the victim rights movement and mass incarceration, the overlapping circles of those who are victims and those who are convicted of crime, and the part about which I am most excited, solutions to make our criminal justice system more responsive to the needs of victims, less focused on retribution and more focused on prevention. We have three guests today to help us understand these dynamics a bit better. Lenora Anderson is a former prosecutor and public safety director. She is the founder and president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice and the author of In Their Names, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety which is partly the impetus for today's forum. Shakira Diaz is a colleague of Lenore's at the Alliance for Safety and Justice, where she is Chief of Federal Advocacy. Shakira is the former Policy Director at the ACLU of Ohio. And Brenda Glass is the founder and CEO of the Brenda Glass Trauma Center, which provides mental health, outreach, advocacy, and other support to victims of violent crimes. If you have a question for our guests, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Lenore Anderson, Shakira Diaz, and Brenda Glass. So, Lenore, let me start with you, since you wrote the book. Um, so your book, In Their Names, is a, it's a provocative title, uh, putting things together that we wouldn't necessarily think about, victims' rights and mass incarceration. Get level set here. Explain what is this book all about. So I've spent the duration of my career uh, advocating for reform in criminal justice and public safety policy, that means a lot of time spent in state houses where politicians are listening to constituencies and promulgating safety policy. One of the things that we've run into over the last 20 plus years doing this work are a set of pervasive myths about American criminal justice that tend to limit the breadth and reach of safety reform. One of those myths 
that's deeply embedded in American politics is this idea that all of that tough on crime, law and order, mass incarceration was to help victims of crime, to advance public safety. Yet we know at Alliance for Safety and Justice and as organizers in communities hardest hit by both incarceration and violence, that that is not true. That all of that spending on criminal justice for the last 40 years has actually done more harm than good, specifically for people hurt by violence and crime. So unpacking this myth was really what inspired me to write this book. I wanted to expose the other side of the coin. Chronic victim disregard and mass incarceration are the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. There's been quite a bit, and we're lucky, uh, that there's been quite a bit that has been said about the perils of mass incarceration from extreme racial disparities in incarceration to depleted state budgets and an imbalanced investment. But what has been not talked about as much is what was the impact of all that tough justice for the people we were purportedly concerned about. And what I've uh, learned through the years of work and I try to lay out in the book is that mass incarceration has actually fueled discrimination against most people hurt by crime and violence. It has eroded community capacity for prevention and community-led solutions. And it has also blinded the public to the realities of what happens in the aftermath of violence and crime. So luckily there's some solutions. The book isn't all just about the problems. I also spend a good chunk of time talking about the solutions, which are, by the way, uh, across the country, cities uh, are filled with leaders who have been disregarded by the criminal justice system who are now leading the path forward. And you'll hear from those leaders today. Thank you. And Shakira, you've been engaged in criminal justice reform for a long time from a lot of different angles. Is this um, angle of from the perspective of victims, is this a new way of looking at things? And I'm going to add another for you okay. individually as we all go down this path. And you're in the book. And not just in your role, but actually as a citizen uh, in the book. And so can you talk about your own experience professionally and personally and how it led you to this? Sure. Uh, thank you for that question. So I can say it's a new way of looking at or discussing it. But in reality, communities that experience repeat victimization know this to be true. We often look at crime victims as one body of people and people who are in contact with the justice system as another body. Well, in reality, there's a lot of this. And that is because unaddressed trauma can often lead somebody to have contact with the justice system. Unaddressed trauma and indifference. What we often see in communities who experience um, high arrest is that the justice system is very responsive when it's time to arrest. There's a lot of conversation even today about crime and violence growing in this country, but little to no conversation about how to support the victims of those crimes. So what happens in communities is that when people are the most vulnerable, they are left alone to figure it out. 
And we know this to be true. Um, unfortunately, we also know that PTSD is pervasive, that systemic indifference is pervasive as well. From my, um, from my experience professionally and personally, I'm a survivor as well. But I also know, and this connected with me so strongly in, in the way that Lenore lays it out in the book, there was one of my very first campaigns. I started out professionally as an educator. One of the very first campaigns that I worked on was one um, of a practice that was common in Cleveland, but it was common pretty much around the country, where um, people in um, predominantly black and brown communities were overcharged for the possession of a crack pipe. So folks were being charged under the state code versus a, a city ordinance, and that meant that folks who were going to prison for what's actually a misdemeanor were going to prison and still have a felony to this day. So that's one issue. But that we worked on, it was, it was resolved. Um, at the same exact time, I have been a, a resident of the city of Cleveland for a long time. In one moment, um, I had a, a break-in in my home. I had to go to a police station and report this break-in. And while I'm sitting there, I hear a young girl being interviewed. She was kidnapped, sexually assaulted for three days straight. And the officer who was interviewing her was screaming at her. And I later had a conversation with the mayor about this issue. And what struck me is that this is a moment after Cleveland has been exposed for not testing rape kits, thank you to the work of Rachel Dissel, that had decades of not testing rape kits. But at the same time, the city that was not testing rape kits, the city that had yet to learn how to engage with sexual assault victims, black and brown and white women from the city, we're not, we're also taking the pri prioritizing testing crack pipes. So while victims could not get help, while there was no funding to test rape kits, there was plenty of funding to test crack pipes, to send people to prison and saddle them with felony convictions. And the key thing there is that while there has been a great deal of response an effort to incarcerate, criminalize, and saddle people with unnecessary felony convictions, there is no abundance of resources in communities that experience that. So from a personal, professional perspective, doing this work in partnership with Lenore and our colleagues at the Alliance for Safety and Justice, it was a more, a more holistic way of looking at all of these different systems that have an opportunity to stop crime from happening, um, to intervene and, and restore hope and stability when people need it the most. Because the child who has experienced or witnessed harm will grow up, maybe. So if that child grows up, you want that child to be whole, you want them to be healed, you want them to be stable. But we don't invest in that. We are investing in a number of other things that increase the number of people who are incarcerated, which is, you know, we are getting our return on investment. This country leads the world in incarceration. There is no other country. You would have to add two countries, multiply them by three in order to get to where we are. But that's where we're investing. We're not invest we are not investing in health. We are not investing in prevention. We are not investing in the overall humanity and restoration of people when they experience harm. 
So Humanity and Restoration, Brenda, you uh, run a trauma recovery center and you are also at the forefront of a national movement of creation of these centers around this country. Talk about what, um, what that means, what a trauma recovery center is and how it can lead to hope and restoration. Thank you, Colleen. And I thank you everybody for being interested in this topic. So um, what I know stems back to my childhood. So, you know, of course, I'm black and I'm old. So therefore, <laughs> I've seen a lot. <laughs> seen a lot, right? So the things that Lenore wrote about, the things that Shakira finds now to be in existence as well, is things that we actually lived through. So we do know that most people that are victims have been victimized. That's just a, a common thing that everyone knows but nobody cares about. So incarcerating individuals who have been traumatized only leads to more traumatization, only leads to people uh, being able to retaliate, being able to be angry, bitter, and then lash out in ways that's ineffective to creating a society of peace and safety, right? So trauma recovery centers were designed to be a holistic approach to helping people heal. So our goal is that people get all their services under one roof so that we don't have to lose them in transition from one agency to another, from one worker to another. The whole idea was that we intervene at the impact of the trauma and not months down the line. So we won't have waiting lists of people coming to us months later after they've been victimized, right? Our goal is to meet them at bedside and be able to help them to begin the process of healing at the moment of impact. That design helps not only the victim, but the victim's family as well. Because children of women that's been victimized, especially male children, grow up to be angry and bitter, especially when there's no assistance for the family to heal. So one of the things that we do at our trauma recovery center is we have safe shelter for those individuals that receive victimization. So most victims are not able to return back to their communities because wherever they was victimized at is still a danger to them. So our goal is to move them out of that neighborhood, put them in a safe place where they have the opportunity to begin to heal. We also know that people that are victimized experience financial disparities as well, right? So I'm victimized, I'm in the hospital, I can't go to work, my injuries are such that I will not be able to return to work anytime soon. And so that puts another barrier for healing. And then I have to figure out where I'm gonna live after I leave this safe shelter. So that's another barrier. Housing in Cleveland is not that great, right? There's little programs that's open to be able to help victims of gun violence. Mm -hmm. Domestic violence has money, but right now Cleveland is experiencing this barrage of you know, gun violence that these people have nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. So our trauma recovery center is there for those individuals as well. We also have individuals that have been in contact with the justice system that are now victimized themselves. There's no one willing to help those individuals except the Brenda Glass Trauma Recovery Center. Because we know that if we help that individual to heal, that individual is less likely to victimize somebody else. That individual is less likely to have to retaliate in order to stay alive. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to help all victims, whether they are in contact with the law or whether they are the person that was just rightly victimized. We found out that doing that, people really want to get better. None of us wake up in the morning and say, oh, I think I'll commit a crime today. Mm -hmm. I think life circumstances, the things that we grow up believing, the lack of hope 
in our black and brown communities leads us down that path. We live in neighborhoods that's gang-ridden, right? What do your kid do when they have to go to school and there's nobody to protect them? You either join the gang or you die from the gang. So there's a lot of things that we can do as a trauma recovery center and a lot of things that we do. We do a lot of outreach to schools. We do outreach to families, hospitals, community centers. Anyone where people show up, that's where we are. We want people to know that there is hope now and we are here to help and to serve. Thank you. Lenora, I want to circle back to um, the definition of victim, and, and both Shakira and Brenda started down this path. You talk about um, the way that the victim rights movement in this country has led us down this path, and the definition of who is a victim, who is not a victim, and who gets to make that decision. Can you talk about that? So the victims' rights movement in the United States uh, really was at its height in the 1980s and 1990s. I'm from California. That's the birthplace of both the victims' rights movement as well as the tough-on-crime movement that led to mass incarceration. And um, it's not a coincidence that those things came from the same place and the same political time. In the uh, 70s and 80s, there was... Uh, the sort of law and order uh, po political uh, movement was growing and it kind of usurped what was happening among people who work with victims of crime at the time, which was to sort of say, you know, victims organizations are talking about the overlooked victim, talking about the fact that the criminal justice system is not very responsive. It's certainly not trauma informed. It treats victims as no better than witnesses to a crime for the purposes of securing a prosecution. Well, all of those things are true. And the political response to that was to build a victims' rights movement that was really braided with a call for tough on crime. The response to overlooked victims by the justice system became not just more courtroom rights and uh, official recognition for compensation programs that's now in most state constitutions, but it was really a marriage of those additional courtroom rights for victims along with fewer rights for people who are convicted of crime. Uh, fewer rights for release, uh, less opportunities to uh, get credit, uh, to leave prison early, uh, fewer what they called amenities in prison. So there was this extreme toughening of the justice system, longer sentences, that was really combined with a shift in how victims are uh, represented in court. And that was sort of the uh, hallmark of the victims' rights movement in the 80s and 90s. But what the problem with that, that political formula, um, this was certainly a formula that was effective um, in the electoral space, but what it really missed was some of the uh, complicated and nuanced realities of cycles in crime and violence at the neighborhood level. And it really missed the fact that the justice system has never been very good at determining who is a victim of crime right. versus who is a suspect. Right. And so especially when you look along race and socioeconomic lines, you can see that most of those calls for victims' rights, especially in the 80s and 90s, were really driven by sort of horrific one-off stories 
primarily where the victims were elite, white, middle class, oftentimes white children. Certainly those families deserve justice, just as all do. But what it meant was that it built up a justice system that was very good at identifying those victims and providing resources, going to great lengths, frankly, to provide compensatory, compensatory resources in the aftermath, to provide a safe uh, transition to new places to live, to provide therapeutic support to recover from the trauma. Very good at doing that for a small minority of victims. When you look at statistically, who's most likely to be hurt, especially as Shakira described, by repeat cycles of crime and victimization, it's not actually the victims that drive the news headlines. It's mm -hmm. not actually the uh, middle-class white families. In fact, statistically, we're talking about low-income communities, communities of color, people with disabilities. People with records are more likely to be victims of crime. And so we've built up a justice system that really doesn't recognize or even sort of see most people who are hurt by crime and violence and uh, kind of drives resources towards helping, helping the limited uh, few who, who make the headlines. And that's really what you know, I try and uncover in the book. And you know, this, this sort of the nuance and the complexity uh, to this issue of crime and violence and what the solutions are, it's, it's really important to note you know, something that Brenda was describing. 90% of the people who enter our criminal justice system as suspects or as people convicted, 90% have prior histories of trauma, have prior histories of victimization. And you know, I remember when I first started this work, I uh, used to organize uh, parents of incarcerated youth and we would bring parents up to state capitals to meet with legislators and talk about the horrific conditions inside the youth prisons. We would get these blank stares, right? It's sort of like we must be the pro-crime lobby if we're talking about the rights of, 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 uh, of youth who are incarcerated. But when, what I knew was that for the vast majority of young people that I was working with, 90% of whom were uh, young people of color uh, from low-income communities, the fact of their incarceration was not actually the worst thing that ever happened to them. It was the most recent. What had happened in their lives previously, whether it was Angela who was sexually assaulted at home only to be put in foster care and sexually assaulted again, or Alex who witnessed 15 murders in his neighborhood by his 15th birthday. The question I kept asking myself doing that work was, where are their victim rights? Where is the movement to protect these young people at the same level that we see in the media all the time? So that's sort of what's happened as it relates to the limited definition of victim. So I want to follow up with Shakira. So one of the things that Lenore talks about in her book about youth are the youth who are given a break, oh, right. they can act out, that's what youth do, mm -hmm. versus the youth who are locked up for mm -hmm. very similar. Um, so can you bring it home to Cleveland and in your work, how do you see that play itself out in Cleveland? So Cleveland, like many other um, cities across the country, there's this pervasive adultification of children children of color in particular. But more broadly, I think the, the issue is that when it comes to the victimization and the harm and trauma experienced by black people, people of color, poor people, 
We are often blamed for our victimization. We are also subsequently subjected to situations where we have to audition for humanity, which is completely unfair. The fact is that we are all human beings. We all deserve the same amount of care, um, intentionality, and support when we experience harm. That is not how public dollars are spent. There's a demographic of people that are suspicious. And whether you are a victim of crime or you have participated in crime, you're suspicious regardless. And we see that in public policies. I mean, you know, Cuyahoga County, um, you know, is one of the leaders in overcharging um, and binding children over to the adult system, black males in particular, black children. But we see those types of statistics across the board. We, um, the fact that often a lot of victim services does not provide information in Spanish uh, for uh, Latina victims or, or Latino victims. It is really a situation where a category of people, and we, we, Lenore refers, this, uh, refers to this as a hierarchy of harm. And then there's at the bottom of that are the people who experience repeat victimization and then at the top of it are the people who deserve support. And that's how our public policies, that's how our public budgets are designed, is that there are certain people that deserve support and certain people who deserve incarceration or complete indifference. Because oftentimes what we see is that the response only comes in one way. Uh, we have been working, and, and our work is really designed not only around changing laws and policies, but also building up these best practices, uh, public safety infrastructures that stop the cycle of crime, that allow someone to feel like a human being, that intercede in the life of a child when they experience harm. So as we're working to grow trauma recovery centers across the country, Again, it goes back to we spend a lot of resources on being the number one incarcerator on earth of youth and of adults. I, um, I remember meeting this years ago with a group of uh, social justice lawyers from Tajikistan. And I was talking with them about this practice of shackling children in court and seclusion rooms in schools. And those lawyers said, does your government know about this? Because <laughs> we're going to DC, can you come with us to tell them about it? I said, they know because they're doing it. And they were appalled that our government was telling their government what to do in cases where they would never do that to children. But again, oftentimes, the children who are at the bottom, who are not seen as deserving, are not seen as human beings. And that also extends to their parents, their siblings, and entire neighborhoods. So what we have is like multi-generational trauma. We have multi-generational systemic indifference. And we see that carried out, not only in, in charging practices, but in intervention practices. And Brenda, from your perspective, working with youth, um, how can uh, addressing issues of trauma, of prior victimization, of racism, how can that help to heal youth in particular? So just to give you a little background, I was sexually assaulted at the age of 13. Uh, I was raped at gunpoint by multiple people. So at a 13, you kind of think life was supposed to be good. Like, I mean, we knew that we were black and we were less privileged, but we still felt that we were human enough to be treated with dignity. So when that doesn't happen, the possibility of anger setting in. 
bitterness setting in. So I look at the kids today and I, I see them as I saw myself, right? I didn't start out being angry and bitter. Mm -hmm. So when we see children that are in the justice system and we see that they are committed a crime that may have been violent and you might have looked at it as being horrific, right? We know when we look behind the scenes of that crime, we might see something like maybe my mom was on drugs. Maybe I lived in a community that was drug-ridden and gang-related. Things took place every day. So I had no way out. So I was with someone that did something, and so I'm caught up in that scene, right? If we work with individuals, I mean any kid. I wasn't a bad kid, and most of the kids that I see are not bad. How I look at children, they come into our program, um, we deal with the, start with the parents, right? These children are scared. They don't know where I'm gonna go. They don't know what tomorrow holds for them or their family. They feel bad that their family has even been put into this situation. And then we say, okay, so what are we gonna do? We're gonna send you to a homeless shelter or we're gonna send you to a typical domestic violence shelter. When I engage those children and I say, no, 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 you're going into the house with just you and your family. Their eyes light up like, yeah, right. You know, I hope it's true, but then, you know, I've been tricked or I've been betrayed most of my life. But then when they walk in the door and they start to say, can I have that bedroom? Not are we all in one bedroom, but can I sleep in that bedroom? And they see that the beds are equipped with, with themed type bedding. They want more for themselves. I have a young man, 13 years old, uh, mom was victimized, beaten badly. He felt very angry, very bitter about that. After three months of working with us, he said, I want to go to school and become a real estate agent. And I said, a real estate agent, why? He said, because I want to get you some houses. <laughs> <laughs> More kids need to be able to experience this, he said. 13. More kids need to be able to experience this kind of life. Like my mom and I, we never lived like this before. And then we helped them to relocate to their own homes. And we helped them to get their own homes furnished. And we helped to get them set up in their own home. And they, get, they become employed, right? Those kids grow up to be children that do good things in society. One such person, this young lady I work with, was molested at uh, 13, watched a friend of hers get shot in the head on her porch stairs, uh, began to self-medicate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people kind of wrote her off, you know, uh, brushes with uh, not minor, big things, but minor things. She is now a master's level nurse. She's in school to become a nurse practitioner because she wants to be able to prescribe medication for my program because she feels that the only chance that she had was to find somebody like us that was willing to walk the walk with her. This is a journey. You know, if I was to come to you with a medical condition, you know, you got rehab, you know, you got uh, at-home rehab, you got, you know, people that are home healthcare aides that'll come out and take care of you, and all those little things goes along with healing, right? But when we are victimized emotionally, spiritually, and practically, there's nobody to walk through that journey with us. And so likely children that have to go through that have little understanding of what life looks like. We come into this world thinking that, you know, life is going to be great. And then all of a sudden we realize not in this house is not, mm -hmm. you know. And so now we send these kids out into the world and then all society says not in this house is not. Schools are not very receptive to people that don't get sleep at night.
If you are in a community where there's a lot of gunplay, when you're in a home where there's drug addiction and where there's noise all the time, you don't get to study properly. Mm -hmm. You don't sleep well. So you go to school and so your behavior is, is off because you're really trying to stay woke. You're really not trying to be disruptive, right? So then you'll be what, frowned upon, put out of school, put in those classrooms that you were talking about, isolation. You know, we do all these kinds of things to kids to show them that they are unworthy mm -hmm. and that they are less than. So they grow up believing that about themselves. But I believe that there's a different society. I believe that we can do different things and that's why I come I devoted my life to doing this since I was 33. I'm like, I'm, I can't sit back and let this happen to other people, what happened to me. I think as a society, if we invest and the young people of our society. I even had a, I worked with a guy who was a heartless felon, uh, wanted to get out of the gang, you know, and of course that's just not an option, right, unless you die. So he was shot three times when I met him. Had no belief that I would be able to help him because he said, you are just a little lady, what can you do? It's a whole gang out there, right? So I, I say, no, I got a good God though. And so, <laughs> so you should see him now, he has a family. He's living in an area that he would look like, less likely be able to live in had we not changed his thought processes, changed what he believed about himself, what he believed about society. He actually, the guy that owns the building was an ex-Hell's angel, so he got it. He understood what it was like to need an opportunity to get a chance, and he has a job. Hmm. Nobody would have believed that this young man would have excelled as he did. He didn't even believe it. He had been in prison for seven years from the age of 23 just being on the scene with somebody else when a crime took place. No money to pay for an attorney, and so he grew up in jail, but he grew up a little different, right? He grew up believing that I gotta get out of here and do something else with my life, I can't mm -hmm. do this. But what did life have to offer him? Three, six months after he was on the street, he was shot three times because he was trying to leave the gang. Mm -hmm. So now he got a better chance at life. Mm -hmm. And I believe if we can intervene more people, I don't believe I'm the only person that's out here that's willing to do this, but it does take funding, mm -hmm. it takes money. And most people are not willing to invest in us, as Shakira right. said, and as Lenore says in the book, because we are what? We're not gonna do anything with our lives. Well, I was one of those people that people thought weren't gonna do anything with their life. But I did. Mm -hmm. And I believe if we give other people a chance, they can do stuff with their life as well. So we need to get to questions. So I'm gonna ask a very short, two things from each of you, phrases. One of the things that I take out of this book in this conversation is that the criminal justice system is not sort of over there. I don't work directly in the criminal justice system, but what I'm hearing from all of you is we all have the ability to impact yes. this work, to change the criminal justice system, even yes. by supporting uh, survivors, as you were describing, mm -hmm. Brenda. So um, you got a lot of great leaders in the community here. What are your sort of two things that people in this room can go out and do to move things and change the way we deal with crime and victims. Shakira, let's start with you. So I would suggest that everyone follows the Alliance for Safety and Justice. We are working in the state houses um, across the country every single day as well as the federal government to change budget priorities. It's important for elected officials to understand that you believe that we all deserve an opportunity to share in this idea of shared safety. That it's not something that is exclusive to the elites in our community, that we are all deserving of it. The fact is that these breakdowns, systemic breakdowns that happen um, throughout 
communities across the country is what is causing crime. The fact that we are investing only in retribution and punishment is what's causing crime. That we need to collectively call for investments and interventions to stop the cycle of crime. That ensure that every single human being is treated with the dignity that they deserve as a human being. Brenda, what are your calls to action? So I would suggest that everyone make it a priority to be able to find ways to fund those programs that are really doing the work. All too often, we put money into programs. 50 years, we've been funding the same programs that's not making any better return on your investment, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's time for a new thing. Crime is new today, you know? There was once a time in my era that I didn't see as much crime as I see today. There was once a time that I didn't see the age groups of people committing crimes that I see today. Mm -hmm. So we got to have new tactics. We got to have new ideas. We have to really begin to start to look at this from a different lens because working with law enforcement is the key, right? They need to be able to identify the perpetrator of a crime, right? They need to be able to bring that person to justice, right? Trauma recovery centers enable that to take place because oftentimes the people that I serve are willing to turn themselves in because they want to be held accountable for what they've done because they want the opportunity to put it behind them and start all over again, mm -hmm. to start a new life with somebody that's willing to help them. So I believe that we should have a forum that we can bring law enforcement, trauma recovery centers together as they do in some other states, which I try to work with in Cleveland, so that we can begin the process of funding the things that work and working the things that we fund. Mm. Lenore, call to action. Well, I would say first we need to heal trauma mm -hmm. and healing trauma starts with trauma recovery centers. It starts with transforming how we think about victims' rights. We've got to have a real right to trauma recovery, right? We have to invest in the community-based organizations that are step-by-step -step helping victims heal that is one of the most important things you can do to advance public safety. When we talk about how are we gonna cultivate safe communities, crimes in the media, politicians are spending millions on, on some of the old messages that we've seen before. We need to reframe the whole issue and have a movement to heal trauma. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is we need to understand the role of empathy in improving public safety. It is the safest thing you can do is actually provide people, just as Brenda was describing, real opportunities for accountability actually emerge from empathy. They don't mm -hmm. emerge from societal exclusion. They emerge from human connection, from real relationships, from seeing people's humanity seeing people's dignity, that's actually how you cultivate opportunities for real accountability. Help victims heal, heal trauma, and provide empathy to people entering our system who've hurt others, provides the best opportunity for public safety. Yes. Thank you. We're about to begin the audience question and answer. I'm Colleen Cotter of the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. I'm joined on stage by Lenore Anderson of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, and author of In Their Names, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety. Shakira Diaz, Chief of Federal Advocacy for the Alliance of Safety and Justice, and Brenda Glass, founder and CEO of the Brenda Glass Trauma Center. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, 
students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question for our speakers, please tweet it at the, tweet, tweet it at the City Club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794, and the City Club staff will try to work it into the program. May we have the first question? Um, first of all, thank you. All, what, you're say, what you've been saying is very important, and what you're doing is very important. There, but you've kind of not quite addressed another set of victims of mass incarceration and that lead to more mass incarceration, and that's the families of the people who are incarcerated, who are then all too often rendered homeless, and, and that leads in turn to a whole other set of problems, including criminal problems, and therefore more mass incarceration. I wonder if you could address that. So, hi Jeff. Uh, so, this system has grown so much. It's 40-ish years of, uh, you know, disrupting lives. So how do we, and we're just now getting to a point where we're talking about PTSD, that we're just not acknowledging it. We are getting to a point where conversations about reentry and the, and the impact on families is beginning to happen. I think, again, to the point that was made is how do we ensure that that is not our only response? Too many people are being flooded into this system and thought to be a solution when it's not. The truth is that as we flood people into the system, we are disrupting families, we're disrupting communities um, beyond that one individual, whether we're talking about folks who have been victimized and not supporting, or we're talking about folks who have come in contact with the justice system. Again, there's that overlap, that, that relationship that exists between unaddressed trauma and contact with the justice system. But again, it's, it's about what kind of world do we want to see? Do we want to have um, a world where everyone can share in safety? Or do we want to have a world where we have a certain number of people um, that are never going to reach that, uh, and very few who do? I just want to add on to that. You know, we talk at, at, at Alliance for Safety and Justice about what we call the dual exclusions, right? There's the exclusions that people who have been uh, convicted face uh, both physical exclusion from society, but lifetime exclusion from economic mobility and stability through uh, you know, uh, uh, thousands upon thousands of laws that uh, prohibit uh, people's eligibility for jobs, housing, loans, the basics. That exclusion on people with records has substantial collateral impacts on families. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from uh, the uh, economic mobility of children, stability in school, all of the things which if, if, if you care about public safety would be alarming alone, just on itself that we do that. But we also exclude victims from some of the same, it's a dual exclusion, right? Uh, because the majority of victims, especially re repeat victims of crime who are not uh, recognized by the system given access to compensation, given access to victim assistance, you see we have this thing, victimization debt. Right? So there's criminal justice debt that people coming out of the system face. There's victimization debt that people who uh, have been hurt by violence face co substantial collateral impacts when it comes to medical bills, um, you know, the inability to relocate, the inability to stay in the same line of work that you had before. Um, all of those things have tremendous 
economic, socioeconomic impacts on families as well. Mm -hmm. So there's this sort of collateral um, circle of impacts that have generational uh, uh, re, you know, uh, outcomes. And I think it's really important for us to sort of look at those two things as two sides at the same mm -hmm. point. This is the same mm -hmm. problem. And it's foundationally based on this mythology that exclusion and permanent exclusion is somehow about safety, and it's just not. You know, can I add to that very quickly a, a quick example? Ohio, for many, many years, um, denied victims' compensation to anyone with a past conviction who sought victims' compensation. Our organization worked on that issue. That is no longer a problem. But what we saw is that parents who had past convictions were unable to get the resources to bury their children who are victims of homicide. So we, we saw growing is, you know, and we see this across the country, are Facebook fundraisers that parents are holding to bury their children. Mm because they have a prior conviction. That's no longer the case in Ohio, but that is the, that is the two sides of that coin that Lenore um, expressed. And if I may, I just wanted to say something what you said about addressing the incarceration and what happens to those families when that person is incarcerated. If we begin to heal families, we begin at that level. Right. It should be a, a, a pre-sensing thing for trauma. Mm. You know, where all, all people that are being sentenced, that they would have a trauma assessment. And having that trauma assessment, we get the opportunity to see what that person has been through in life, what their family members may be going through, and begin to heal them people. They could fall under the trauma recovery center model and then they can get the assistance that they need that's what a real trauma center needs to look like mm -hmm. because i think we all too often like you said we forget about the person that committed the crime what trauma that person has been through and how he even got to that place and then that person has a family but to me trauma recovery centers will actually do that i do that i look at people from a holistic approach not just from the individual that's sitting before me welcome to town folks and thank you for the work that uh, you're currently involved in uh, Shakir, this question is for you. Oh, and any other panel members. You uh, talked about systemic indifference. A lot of folks in the room are engaged in opposing that systemic indifference. But what can we do? Give us some marching orders. What can we do? If, when I walk out the room today, I mean, I'm involved in providing a bevy of services trying to get folks through the gauntlet. But in order to deal with systemic indifference that continues to perpetuate the kinds of problems that you guys are talking about, what can I do? Give me some marching orders that I can start tomorrow with my network in terms to address that, because we see the systemic indifference all the time. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, thanks, Charles. Um, it's important for us to look at our own organizations, our, the, the systems that we are engaged in, and examine how we're excluding people. There have been victim-serving agencies that have said, oh, we're not serving anyone with a past conviction. We're not serving anyone with a mental illness. Those are internal policies of exclusion. We want to make sure those are exactly the people that you need to be helping. So I think that's a good way of starting. Um, oftentimes, the focus is, um, I, you know, in this work, it's like they focus on the, the period instead of, like, the beginning. There are a lot of things that happen along the way. How can you play a role in that, in making sure that you are being helpful, not harmful? What they said. <laughs> over and over. 
I mean, I would say partner with the Trauma Recovery right. Center, the Brenda Glass part, part, Trauma Recovery Center. We've had trauma recovery centers in Ohio now for um, since 2017. Okay, so it's a new. It's new. This concept of trauma recovery. So I think that these partnerships are, are key. I think one of the things that you can do for some marching orders is just begin to speak out. You know, we know that this stuff exists, and that's why I was able to stay hidden for so long because people didn't speak out, and we thank Lenore right. for writing a book. That taking having the courage to stand up and to say this is what actually happened. You know, talking to our legislators, helping them to understand that we voted you in. You know what I mean? We want you to do something about our communities that are unsafe, and we're not going to do it by policing because we can see crime is escalating. It's not becoming, you know, you have minuses and uh, people committing crimes. It's rising, and it's going to continue to rise until we start to push legislation, push your city uh, council people, your county council people, push people to do what needs to be done to preserve your communities. You know, just yesterday, the shooting at Cleveland Clinic, who would have thought, right, around the area, right? So the young lady I'm telling you about, she's there at the time that this is taking place. She's coming out of Cleveland Clinic. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's frightening. A five-year-old kid is there. She had to snatch him out the way. And so the thing is, is that, like, we need to get busy about pushing our representative to do the work that needs to be mm -hmm. done. The, the time is now. You know, the urgency is so at hand that the next time something happens may be right next door to you or might be in your neighborhood. The longer things go unaddressed, the less people that speak out about it, the more dangerous it becomes for any of us to live in our communities. Hi, thank you so much um, to all of you for the work that you do. Um, <clears throat> I think it's, um, it's really important that we talk about trauma and, and how to heal it. Um, and there's so much work there to be done, um, but I think the long-term goal, right, is to try to make that work of healing trauma unnecessary in the long term. And it, a couple of points um, sort of off of those answers that you just gave and the panel discussion earlier um, seem to hinge on two institutions that are typically very resistant to changes in approach, which are the police and the prosecutor's offices. Um, is there anything that we can do sort of as citizens to try to help affect that culture change um, with those particular folks um, uh, sort of in addition to what you would do um, sort of in your efforts to target legislators and, um, and other elected officials as well? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Lenore? Yes. So I uh, spent about a half a decade inside a prosecutor's office, and um, I worked closely with uh, law enforcement in the city of Oakland, where I live, as, as well. And um, what I have found uh, more often than not is that uh, people who work inside the criminal justice system will tell you, along with people who advocate for reform, that policing and prosecution is not the best pathway to safety. What they don't have are the parallel institutions that are strong enough and invested in enough to be the response. So what needs to happen is we need to work with those who are forward thinking in law enforcement and prosecution offices to advocate for the building up of those alternative solutions. Some of the strongest advocates for mental health crisis response, which would be an alternative response to people experiencing psychiatric crisis, 
some of the strongest advocates are people from law enforcement mm -hmm. who have been ill-equipped to respond to psychiatric crisis for the last 20, 30 years. If all they have are handcuffs, that's what they're gonna do. And so when you can talk to people who work inside the system about the limitations of the tools that they have to deal with the root causes, to deal with the underlying issues, they can become advocates alongside with you for those transformed investments. Um, you know, uh, Gary Moore, former uh, Department of Corrections director here uh, from Ohio, was one of the staunchest advocates saying, take the money out of my budget yeah. and put it into drug treatment in the community mm -hmm. level. Because they're just, people with uh, uh, experiencing drug addiction are being driven into my prison system and I cannot solve it here. Right. That's the kind of leadership we need to applaud when it comes to our uh, colleagues who work inside the justice system. Mm -hmm. They're there. They usually get flack, frankly, from, yeah. from their peers for standing out. So we need to actually say, no, that's actually the kind of leadership we want to see from people who work inside the justice system. Honesty. Honesty about, look, this is what I cannot solve over here. Mm -hmm. So we need drug treatment, real investments. We need no more waiting lists for mental health no more waiting lists for domestic violence shelter, no more waiting lists for youth violence prevention programs, youth development programs after school. Those are gonna be your best advocates inside law enforcement and prosecution offices. I've seen it and I think it's doable. Mm -hmm. Hi, uh, my name is Natasha. I'm here with uh, Lutheran Metropolitan Ministries. Um, I do wanna say thank you for coming today. Um, I definitely enjoy listening to all of your perspectives on the topic. Um, mainly, I like the points that you guys brought up about the um, fact that trauma or crisis, all of this is a journey um, and the longevity of it. And then also um, the point that, you know, we have to understand the definition of victim and a suspect and the correlation between the right. two. Um, aside from being with LMM, I'm also um, a mother of a gun violence survivor and um, a 12-year military veteran. Mm -hmm. um, and so I focus a lot on advocacy and gun violence in the city. Um, with all of your ideas, which I loved uh, the approach, one of the issues that I see um, is the pri prioritization of services um, in these situations and also um, time and so you know how can we provide these services prioritize them and um, serve them in an expeditious manage ma I'm sorry manner while you know being sensitive to the victims and the suspects in the environment that they're in if you have any ideas I'm sorry <laughs> thank you so as I said before, our trauma recovery center models are designed to meet people at impact. So you said you are the survivor of a gun violence, your child was shot? Yes, my daughter, um, and her school is actually here. Okay. Um, but yeah, my daughter, she's 19, well, she'll be 19 mm -hmm. on the 26th. But unfortunately, um, she was on her way to work July mm -hmm. 10th, 2021, and was shot by um, a stray bullet. Someone was trying to shoot someone else mm -hmm. and went through her windshield. Okay. So shot and did you receive any services? No. So that's what I mean. That's why we need trauma well, that, recovery yeah, centers. That's why this was very personal to yeah. me because victims of crime, we never yeah. receive services. Right. Yes. But also advocating and learning about all of 
Thank you. <laughs> Advocating, of course, yeah. um, like you three, and kind of continuing to learn about politics and becoming a part of different organizations that I'm familiar with in the room. Um, that's how I got the services. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate uh, what you said, Ms. Glass, just about how it's a journey mm -hmm. and you also have to look at the suspects as well yeah. and the entire situation, you know, a holistic approach. And so it's just so difficult to prioritize the needs that everyone in that situation needs at the yeah. moment and provide those needs in a fast manner. Um, I look at 2021 to where me and my daughter are now and we're still not done um, with what we're doing we still you know to this day are accepting resources and help from people because it is a journey and so just realistically I would love to hear what type of help that you would provide you know because it's just such a touchy situation um, and I mean it's in, they need a community you know they this do. type of situation needs it a needs group a of people hands-on and so realistically I just would love to hear you know one of your ideas and it needs a group of the right people right because we can get a lot of services but none of them actually hit the mark right so our trauma recovery center model and this is attorney general's office model right they want victims of crime to help victims of crime they want people who have had like experiences to be involved in that journey you know, one of the things that a young lady said to me is what I love about it is that you knew what I needed and I didn't even know I needed it. Mm -hmm. It's something about having that experience yourself and being able to have healed from that experience and now having the opportunity to go back and help someone else gives a sense of security and safety to the individual that's experiencing it right now. I didn't have that when, when I was going through my situations, right? Many of them. But anyway, but I think being able to get, help someone right at, at, at the moment of impact and letting them know I feel where you're coming from. Just something as simple as when we put take people into our safe shelter, having pampers there for the babies that the mom didn't even think my kid need pampers. I didn't even think about that, mm -hmm. right? Having milk in a bottle for the baby because you know you were domestic violence, you had to run out the house quickly or because there was gun violence, you had to leave quickly. You didn't think about clothing. Having those things available. Having people that know the experience, mostly people that look like us, because that's what I've heard many, many people say is that you just don't get it. You know, like I can't explain everything to you. I can't tell you everything about my life because I'm afraid you're going to take my children. Mm -hmm. If I tell you some more things that could have happened or how I'm really feeling, if I say that I wish I wasn't here, you're going to pink slip me. Right. So it's so many barriers to getting the help that you need. And that's why I say the right help at the right time is what is expected. Trauma recovery centers are designed to be the right help at the right time for most victims. And so for us, we have the idea that Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice helps us speak out. What I found out telling your story and making that, allowing your story to help somebody else actually help you to heal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And each person that tells their story and they tell it to a group of people that's like-minded, group of people who have similar experiences, they feel encouraged and empowered. And that empowerment and that encouragement is the most healing mechanism we can ever give to someone. We, most of us suffer behind a loss of a loved one or someone being harmed because we have a belief that that should not happen. But we change the dynamics, right? Because in our society today, it's more likely that it will happen than that it won't happen. So we have to really adjust what we believe, adjust what we think, and adjust how we address the trauma we experience. And people say that your PTSD belongs in third world countries, right? Well, when I look out in Cleveland, 
Like the mm -hmm. incident yesterday, the young lady said, I thought I was in Saudi Arabia somewhere. Like they riding down the street shooting in broad daylight, mm -hmm. right? And so it's kind of like we have to start to change our thought processes about victimization, about crime, and about those that need help. If we don't heal that perpetrator, what are they going to do? They're going to go inside the wall and then wreak havoc in there. If they get out, they're going to come back out on the street and wreak havoc out here again. So that's the reason why I come is the, you know, the same coin, you know, as Lenore puts it. Everybody has to heal. This is not a one and done thing. I help the victim, but I don't help the perpetrator because you're going to come back out and perpetrate another crime, right? So that's, that's my thought is that people need to get the help that they need and the way that they need it from the people that they need it from and for as long as they need it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Thank you for the wonderful questions. Thank you. Um, I want to thank our panelists, Lenore Anderson and Shakira Diaz of the Alliance for Safety and Justice and Brenda Glass of the Brenda Glass Trauma Center. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's forum is part of the City Club series on criminal justice reform, which is sponsored by the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation. Today's forum is part of the Authors in Conversation series in partnership with Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, the John P. Murphy Foundation, and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. The City Club is grateful for your continued support. We want to thank our community partners today, the ACLU of Ohio, the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, the Social Justice Institute of Case Western Reserve University, and the Black Professionals Association Charitable Foundation. We would also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by some of the partners I've mentioned, and the Community Rape Crisis Center, the Alliance for Safety and Justice, the George Gunn Foundation, MC Squared STEM High School, and Campus International High School. Thank you all for being here. There are a number of great forums coming up. You can find out more about them, buy a ticket, or catch the live stream at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to our panelists, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Colleen Cotter, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.